morning, everyone. Um, as you know, in the last few weeks, we've been looking at the Christmas story, but we've kind of been taking a, a unique look at it, seeing it from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, and even in the book of Revelation. Uh, by accident, really, it was Brian's great idea. He used that illustration of a symphony, so we've kind of renamed the series God's Symphony of Redemption. Because that seems to be a really helpful framework as we look at how God's plan of redemption unfolds. It's really, in essence, a musical masterpiece written by God from the world before the world began. And like all great symphonies, it has movements, as we see all throughout the symphonies in history. That first movement we looked at a couple of weeks ago when that uncomfortable tension was created when sin entered into the world. It was an infection of rebellion that, that plagued the hearts of all humanity. But then we learn that there's, there's this hint of hope in that early Genesis story. We understand that the curse actually has a cure, that God inaugurates his plan of redemption and talks about how Satan's deception would one day be destroyed and God's plan of redemption would be in place. The details of that plan begin to slowly emerge in the second movement of God's symphony as we look at the Old Testament and see the increasing clarity of exactly who this promised Messiah would be began in Genesis when we learned that it would be from the lineage of humanity. It would be a seed of the woman. But then as we unpack the story of the Old Testament, we learned that, that it would actually come from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, as a descendant of David. That this promised redeemer would be born of a virgin in the city of Bethlehem. Which is why when Herod was in a panic, trying to figure out about this Messiah and what would happen and where he would be born, he asked the religious leaders, and in essence, they said, oh, that's easy. Everybody knows that, right? In Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, listen to how they respond. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, see how matter-of-fact it is? For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So in God's symphony of redemption, in these first two movements, we really learn two very important things. Number one, God has a plan. A plan that existed from before the world began. And number two, he keeps his promises. Every single detail of that redemptive plan is an outworking of a promise that God has made. And now in this third movement, we're going to see that his timing is perfect. So let's put these three together and think about this. God has a plan. He keeps his promises. His timing is perfect. Now, who doesn't need to hear that for their lives right here, right now today? So let's just thank the Lord for that in and of itself and ask him to guide us through our time in his word. Father, we are grateful for that truth that we already see so clearly, that you have 
and have always had a plan. That, that you are faithful to keep your promises as that plan consistently and clearly unfolds over time. And that your timing is perfect. We, we admit, we struggle to see that part. Because sometimes we have a different timing in mind. But Lord, when we look at the landscape of history, we can't help but recognize how the timing is just as you intended to fulfill a perfect plan because of your perfect timing through a perfect Savior who is present in this moment through the power of His Spirit who is speaking to our hearts through the truth of your Word. Lord, it is real. And it is right now. And so, Lord, would you, by those truths, speak deeply into our hearts and minds this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark. I want us to look at a passage together um, that uh, we will unpack with each other this morning. So the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. So right there beginning, and I want us to read just a couple of verses beginning in... 14, so Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 14. You know, just side note here, we always put the verses up on the screen. I think that's helpful, but I also think it's helpful to navigate your way through the Scripture because I know a lot of times when I'm sitting down with someone and we're having a conversation and I think of a verse, I don't have a screen to look at, but I do have this that I can go to. And so I always think it's good for us to, to spend time in the Word when you got it in front of you. So let's look at it together. Verse 14. Now after John had been taken into custody, talking about John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, like many places in Scripture, there can be a simple statement made that is absolutely packed with truth, and this is one of them. Because in this statement, Jesus highlights three important truths, and I want us to look at them together this morning. The first one being when he says, the time is fulfilled. Now, in his context, we know that Jesus talking about the time that was appointed by God to fulfill the promise of redemption, which tells us, as we've been talking about all along, that, that God has a plan. He's not making this up as it goes. There's a specific day, a, a moment in history when the promised Messiah would be revealed. And Jesus is speaking to the people and he's saying, you need to know now is that time. I think it's fascinating if you take a step back and, and just begin to recognize all the ways that, that things happen in terms of God's timing as it relates to world events. Because there was so much taking place that was, was literally paving the way for the promised Messiah. In fact, if you think about well, the Roman government when they came in, they created a highway system that allowed unprecedented international travel. There were over 50,000 miles of hard-packed roads that connected all the way from the European countries around through the Middle East up to the northern Africa. You can kind of, that's amazing, is it not? 
in a, an historical event of monumental proportions. Not only that, even before this took place, you had the, the Greeks who came in. And one of the things that the Greeks did that was hugely significant was that they established a common language. Much like when the British Empire came in and established the English language, it's kind of the common international trade language that you see in our world today. For them, it was Koine Greek. But it allowed people from different parts of the world to effectively communicate to each other. So let's think about this. International travel a common language among the peoples. And then you had the establishment of law and order. It's what is known as Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. Because one of the other things that the Roman government did is they they came in and and had a a major advancement in what had become a pretty crime-ridden world. But now there was a judicial system established by Rome to promote law and order. And one of the ways that this was done was through the public display of capital punishment, one of the more common being that of crucifixion. They wanted it to be a deterrent in such a way that everyone couldn't miss it. It was literally there for the world to see. And so that's just a few of the examples. And you can already in that begin to see how the groundwork is being laid. The stage is set. The time has been fulfilled. That's why when Paul writes to Titus, he says these words. He says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Notice again that same statement, the the fullness of time. A moment in history divinely ordained by God. And Paul is making this statement in the context of an illustration that he's using uh, describing the relationship of a father and a son. Specifically, the father's responsibility to determine when the son is allowed to have the promised inheritance. Even though that son was born with a birthright to the family estate. But until that time, while the child was young, it was kind of put into what we would consider a trust. They had an overseer who would help manage the estate to protect it while that child was still young and immature. And according to Roman law, that age of maturity for the son had to be determined by his father. Only then did the son receive the promised inheritance. Paul is using that illustration to help us understand that our Heavenly Father determined for all of humanity the time that we would receive His promised provision. The day when He would send His Son. The seed of a woman. Remember, here it is again. Born of a woman in the lineage of humanity. He goes on and says, born under the law. It's another way of saying he's born through the nation of Israel. He's Jewish because he lived within the context of the covenant community of God, Israel. And it tells us that he was born with a purpose, to redeem those under the law. 
A law, as we have talked about many times, that was instituted to both reveal sin and establish our guilt. But Jesus came to take our guilt, to to bear our shame, so that by faith we can become children of God, heirs to that promise. We see that in Romans 8, 17, when Paul writes and says, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus is saying that time has been fulfilled. It is now. But he goes on and says another powerful statement. He says, and the kingdom is at hand. Now, this second truth is an important part of God's promise, but probably one of the more misunderstood You may remember when the disciples were meeting with the resurrected Christ, okay? Now, put this in context. This is after death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Before he's ascended into heaven, they're in the physical presence of the risen Messiah. Now, up until this point, we know that they have heard the teachings of Jesus. They have been personally mentored and discipled by him. They have witnessed his miracles, And now they're standing in his presence. And they can ask him any question at all. What was their question? Well, the Bible records it for us in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. It says, when they had come together, they were asking him, speaking of Jesus, saying, Lord, is it this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? I think it should be important for us to recognize that the most important question pressing on the minds of the disciples is, is this the time of the promised kingdom? And the answer Jesus gave is very revealing. Look at what he says in verse 7. He said to them, it is not time, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Again, notice that these Events in human history are not random. They are predetermined by a sovereign God in a specific moment and in time by his own authority. Every detail of his plan of redemption was established ahead of time. But in their defense, Jesus didn't tell his disciples that they were asking him a silly question. He didn't look at them and say, guys, you've got it all wrong. (laughs) That's not going to happen. What did he say? He said, you just need to trust that God's timing is perfect. And all this goes to show that, that the kingdom of God as a concept can be difficult to understand, even for Jesus' own disciples. Because you'll remember God promised David that he would raise up one of his descendants and would establish his kingdom. And he goes on to describe that this is actually an eternal kingdom ruled by the promised Messiah. So you can kind of understand why the disciples were asking their question in the first place. But what everyone wants to know is, what exactly is that going to look like? When will it happen? What's going to take place? Because on one hand, if you think about it, when Jesus taught his disciples. He was speaking to them about how they should pray. And in the midst of that, he says this in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. So, so when we hear that, we logically think through and say, well, that kind of sounds like somehow there are heavenly realities that intersect with our earthly lives. And I think we would all agree that's certainly true when Jesus came to earth. Because he undeniably, did he not bring heavenly realities with him? In fact, he said as much. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, when he told the religious leaders, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, here's what you know. The kingdom of God has come upon you. So when Jesus came to earth, he brought the kingdom of God with him. He came with authority over all of creation. We know throughout the testimony of Scripture how he, by that authority, healed diseases. By the authority of heaven, he cast out demons. By the authority of heaven, he calmed the seas. Even the disciples looked at him and said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? His entire ministry was fulfilled with kingdom authority, which means his kingdom came when Jesus came to earth. But we also know, and here's where it gets a little confusing, that the Bible goes on and speaks of future kingdom realities as well, doesn't it? We learn that in Revelation that there's an earthly reign of Christ um, that takes place after the tribulation, right? Re Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 explains it this way. It says, but blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection, over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. And there it is, will reign with him for a thousand years, a, a thousand year earthly kingdom. But, but that's not even all, as even significant as that is. Because the Bible goes on to describe an eternal kingdom born out of a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, a kingdom where God's people Live in God's presence, in loving fellowship with God's Son. It's a kingdom of righteousness where the Bible tells us in that kingdom, there is no more sin. There is no more pain. There is no more suffering or shame. It's a place where God's righteousness rules and reigns eternally and finally and completely. This is the ultimate destiny for everyone who surrenders to the rule of Christ in their hearts, in their daily lives. So we can see from Scripture that the, the kingdom of God has both present and future realities. And I think we could even sum it up by saying it only gets better with time, right? But let's not forget that those kingdom realities exist right here in our lives today because when we are in Christ, don't miss this, when we are in Christ, his kingdom power is at work in us. And the reason we know that's true is because Paul says it in Colossians chapter 1, 29, when he says, for this purpose also I labor, striving according, here it is, to his power 
which mightily works within me. And let me remind you, what is true for Paul is true for every follower of Jesus Christ to this day. His kingdom power at work in you. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom has come. And then Jesus goes on to say what? Repent and believe in the gospel. Three truths, right? The the first two really describing what God has done. The third, more what we should do with what God has done. It's a response of faith to to, to the redemptive plan of God. And what Jesus says here, we need to understand the, the consistency of Scripture because what Jesus says here aligns with the testimony of John the Baptist, the one who precedes him, who was intended to prepare a way for the promised Messiah. And you'll remember when John the Baptist had his ministry, the Bible is very clear that he preached repentance, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But we need to be careful here because John himself never claimed the authority to forgive sins. What he said is, I'm preparing the way for the one who does. In fact, when he announces the arrival of Jesus, do you remember what he said? Behold, the Lamb of God who came to take the sins of the world. So what Jesus is doing here in in that passage is he is proclaiming these truths, is affirming what John the Baptist had already said, and he is taking one step further, and he's saying the time has come. The kingdom has come. Repent and believe in the gospel, the hope of redemption, through the forgiveness of sins. So let's put all this together. Because you may remember that encounter that Jesus had with the paralytic when his friends lowered him down through the roof. Seeing that man laying at his feet, unable to move, do you remember what Jesus said to him? Let me remind you, Matthew chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Is that what you expected? It's probably not even what he expected, was it? But that's why he came. And the religious leaders who were standing there hearing these words spoken by Jesus immediately rebuked him for the blasphemy of those words. Because they knew Jesus was claiming to do something that only God can do. And I'm here to tell you this morning, that's the point. So Jesus responded in this way, verse 5. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But I say that you may know the Son of Man has authority, kingdom authority on earth, To forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up. Pick up your bed. Go home. And he did. He got up 
and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. <laughs> they didn't know quite who Jesus was, but they knew nobody had the authority, kingdom authority, to do what Jesus had just done to this man. You see, that's the gospel, the good news, that Jesus came to do what only God can do. It's the main point. And like that paralyzed man, we need to understand, boy, if we're honest with ourselves, we are just as needy and desperate as he was. We are disabled by the disease of sin and powerless to break free apart from Christ. But when we repent and we believe, Jesus brings healing and forgiveness to our lives. And many in this room know that's true. But here's an important exercise. And boy, let me, I'd encourage you to do this anytime you're spending time in the scripture, especially when you're in the gospels. These are beautiful, real life, actual people scenes, right? And so when you read them, you need to put yourself in there somewhere. Maybe you're one of the friends who is lowering Jesus or uh, your friend down to the feet of Jesus. Maybe you're in the crowd observing this. Maybe you're a religious leader leader asking who has the authority to do this. Maybe you're the paralyzed man, and that's what I want you to consider this morning. So picture it. Picture yourself as that paralyzed man or woman who is being lowered down and laid at the very feet of Jesus. You can't move, remember. The best you can do is turn your head and look into his eyes. Imagine that. Because when you look into his eyes, what do you see? When you believe. You see eyes that are filled with mercy and grace. When you believe, you hear Jesus speak the promise of forgiveness. When you believe, you find healing in the hope of redemption. When you believe, there is in that moment a shift in your affections. Because I want you to notice that something that wasn't a part of that story, and I don't believe it would be a part of ours as well, the man didn't get up and say, oh, this is great. Now I can just get on with my life, right? That's not what happened. I think you and I, probably much like this man, would look at Jesus and say, how can I live my life for you? I owe you everything. See, we need to realize you are empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's divinely ordained purpose for your life. And we need to let that truth sink deep into our souls this morning. I know a lot of times it's easy for us to to go about our days, whether we're in college, we're trying to work our way through high school, where we're raising a young family, whether we're in retirement or wherever stage or season of life we can be. And it can just be day to day. Just how do I get through this day? And we don't stop and consider that you have a divinely ordained purpose in your life. You're not just here to make it through the day. 
There is a kingdom purpose that is going on in the life of every person who has chosen to follow Jesus Christ. Because it'd be easy for you and I, and I think we often do it, just look back on the landscape of history and and, and we can be in awe at the, the arrival of Jesus at just the right time and we can acknowledge a lot of the things that we've looked at together this morning. We can even marvel at his life and ministry and the things that happen with examples like this paralytic man. And, and the fact of the matter is, we know more about Jesus Christ than certainly anybody who lived during the life of Christ and for many more than any have ever known in the history of the world. Because we have the whole redemptive story from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. By faith, we live by a kingdom power through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Our, our lives, when, when we have turned to God in faith, are, are ruled by Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of faith, the one who is before all things and through whom all things hold together. We live in his kingdom of grace, which is why we can approach his throne of grace with confidence. And it's why when we do, we will always find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Let me say it again, as I've said before, you are one in whom Christ dwells and delights. You live in the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are you. You see, God's perfect timing is not relegated to some events of the past. It is alive and well right now in your life today. Remember, God has a plan. He keeps his promises and his timing is perfect. That, that's truth, unchanging truth that applies to every one of us this morning. But like we see in our passage, it's also a truth that we have to accept by faith. And many times, that is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Because if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes it feels like God has forgotten our desperate situation. Am I right? Sometimes it seems like he is really slow about fulfilling his promises. Even to the point that sometimes we might even be thinking, is he ever really going to come through? Let me remind you, as Peter spoke to an audience who had the very same concerns, this is what he says, 2 Peter 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord with the Lord one day is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. I think that's trying to tell us his time is not like our time, right? The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, I think many times we hear that verse, and I think rightly so, apply it to those who have yet to come to faith in Christ. And he's not slow, but he is patient, wanting everyone to come to that place of faith in Christ. And I believe that's true. But I do think this applies to you and I today, even if we have put our faith in Christ as well. Because I think if we're honest, 
Sometimes we need to repent of our doubt. And we need to trust in God's goodness, right? Sometimes we need to repent of our idol of comfort. The the desire for us to be in control and for things to work out in a certain way. And we need to trust in God's sovereign control and his perfect timing. Sometimes we need to repent of rebellion where we are willfully walking in a way that we know is not right with God and we need to trust as we turn to him in his forgiveness, his grace. We need to live by that conviction that Paul, or excuse me, David writes about in Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever where his kingdom reigns in righteousness eternally. But that kingdom has come. And may his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And knowing full well that when you are in Christ, that kingdom power is at work in you. Amen? Don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For the clarity of your word, and especially the words that leave your mouth through your ministry, like we've looked at this morning. To recognize that the time has been fulfilled, that pre-creation plan of God to redeem humanity, knowing that they would walk in rebellion from him due to sin, that he would restore the relationship that we were ultimately created for, and he had that plan before any of us were born. That time has come, and that kingdom is now. Your kingdom came when Jesus came to earth, and he brought heavenly realities with him. And those realities exist in the life of every believer to this day through the power of the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus himself as a gift of God, a kingdom power to accomplish kingdom purposes for all who belong to him. Father, help us believe that your timing is perfect. You're not slow. And Lord, I know there are times that we wonder and doubt, but Lord, you're faithful to remind us, I've got you. I've got this. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. You have a plan. You keep your promises. Your timing is perfect, both now and for all eternity. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Interesting middle ground, is it not? Where on one hand we look and know and believe based on Christ's own words that the kingdom has come. And yet we look in our world around us and even in our own lives and we think, man, this is messy. And we see where the Bible tells us to eagerly anticipate the day of Christ's return. And we do because that's when we know things that are messy all made right. But listen to me. There are kingdom realities that are present for you right now in the midst of the messy. Okay? So when you think about things that you know to be true in Scripture, like that Sea of Galilee, raging madness, 
certain death, and you think there is no way we're getting out of this alive, that the Savior speaks and he says, peace, be still. That kingdom authority is available in your life right now. The healing that we talked about this morning with the paralytic, broken, unable to do anything to change his condition, the the same Savior can speak into your life and give you freedom and hope in a moment. So I just want to encourage us that even in the midst of the messy, there are still miraculous things that are happening in our lives that really are unexplainable from an earthly perspective, but from a spiritual perspective, we know that Jesus is alive, that his kingdom has come, that he rules and reigns in our hearts and lives, and we are experiencing the blessing of that hope right now. Amen? So encourage each other in this, because some of us are in some really hard places, and we need to be reminded of how that's true. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. That's why the Bible says, and even more as we see the day drawing near. Let's pray. You're so kind. You're so good. I just, I can see it all throughout Scripture where you have this compassion, where you want us to hear life-changing truths, but you also know that you're speaking into the chaos and to the context of such heartache and difficulty. And so you're gentle. You're humble. You don't force any of this on us. You just invite us to come to you where we experience it. And so I just pray for everybody in this room in the days and weeks ahead, especially in those moments when things seem messy, (laughs) that they would find themselves at the feet of Jesus and like the paralytic that we would look into your eyes and we would see mercy and grace words of forgiveness and hope assurance and comfort all in our time of need Father may we have the faith to look into your eyes and know that is true We love you, and we know you love us. And so it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.